Hello and welcome to The Grand Thunk, the podcast in which we, Alex Blanchard and Rhiannon Kearns, discuss what we've been reading, watching and listening to. A fairly simple premise. We have transcripts available in our link tree, which is in our Instagram bio at The Grand Thunk. You can message us there or email us, thegrandthunk at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. So please subscribe, rate, review and tell all your friends. Thank you. How are you? Yes, really good. Really good. Excited, happy. Ah. Mm. I was just thinking as we were doing the intro, mm. I don't know if I've ever told you this before. As we mentioned in our intro, we do transcripts, so the podcast is as accessible as possible. Mm-hmm. And when the transcribing service gets to the intro, it can never handle Rhiannon <laughs> Kearns. And it always transcribes <laughs> it as random Kens. <laughs> So every time you say the podcast in which Alex Blanchard and Rhiannon Kearns, I'm always tempted to be like Alex Blanchard and random Kearns. <laughs> I love when the third character of the sneeze comes along. Oh, I know. Yeah, it literally transcribes the sneeze. Oh, dear. <laughs> Let's dive right in. What have you been up to this week? What have you been reading? I've been reading the most fantastic book. It's by Albert Camus called Create Dangerously. And it's kind of blown my mind. It's made from three speeches made by Camus between 1945 and 1957, and they're called To Create Today is to Create Dangerously, Bread and Freedom, and Defiance of of Intelligence. And Mm. I'll be honest, the Bread and Freedom speech, which discusses and demands the alliance of justice and freedom politically, I think, (laughs) went slightly over my head. But it did have this really elegant description of you know whataboutisms like if you're discussing unpaid housework and then someone you're talking to then comes back to you and is like but what about fgm oh yeah yeah as if to kind of trivialize your argument out of existence he brings up this whataboutism and it's something really powerful about seeing that recognized as a sort of argumentative technique in 1953 Mm. but then also the ineffectiveness of that argument that regardless of the existence of fgm unpaid housework still exists and vice versa so that was really interesting but i'm gonna have to revisit that essay and try and understand it better honestly but the first essay or speech to create today is to create dangerously is about creation obviously and creating responsibly between a space of realism and idealism and freedom and is similarly reflective of today's society One of the first points in the speech is, and I'm going to quote it, the moment that abstaining from choice is itself looked upon as a choice and punished and praised as such, the artist is willy-nilly impressed into service. So he's talking about the way in which any publication of art is an act which exposes itself to the passions of the time. And he's talking about his particular age, which he says forgives nothing. And I thought it was so interesting and poignant in the face of everything that gets said about cancel culture and, oh, you can't say anything nowadays, that back in in 1957, when he made this speech, that he still at that point felt like there was this onus on the artist to speak about the world and and for your, any work that you put out as an artist to be judged and forgiven or not by the public. But he also then says, but within this world that is so unforgiving, we need to find a way in which we can create and find liberty in creation. So he talks about his privilege as well and how the artist and he has woken up to the plight of the masses and the way in which art can seem like a luxury as mere entertainment and as art for art's sake. And yet art is so important in the search and the quest for liberation and freedom and that artists have to be responsible and speak for those that cannot be heard without getting so lost in realism as to become idealistic and not to flee from realism so as to become isolated from the time in which you create, which it's unbelievable that someone is writing about these ideas which feel very 2020 but in fact uh relevant 
60 years ago or so. So he also talks about some fantastic idea that gets chucked around in John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, which I'm currently in the middle of reading, which is this notion of judgment and understanding that to judge absolutely between good and evil as an artist is to indulge in melodrama, where the aim of art primarily is to understand and to only judge absolutely if you have full understanding of a situation or or anything, which I just think is one of the most, it must be one of the most important things to think about. I think especially now that we react so quickly, and Camus again talks about this, that we react so quickly to the notion of a thing where we read a headline in which someone's work gets discussed as being x y or z and without having read the thing itself we then perpetuate that opinion that something is x y or z without having ever read or interacted with the piece that it is the responsibility of an artist but i think also everyone to interact with the world fully not to judge people without having read the piece without having listened to their side completely without having understood what's going on which i think is really important actually and he talks about this thing of beauty and how it cannot be a servant to the whims of politics but has to be a servant to the suffering of man and that the lesson of beauty must be brotherhood or sisterhood that beauty serves love and that an artist must bear that responsibility and labour of liberty and walk the line between amusement and conformism and build a world and a truth for all and it was just such an extraordinary speech and I'm so again astonished about how relevant it seems that we're still walking this tightrope despite all the changes brought by social media and technology and you know the distance from the world wars in his second essay, The Defiance of Intelligence, sorry, speech, he again discusses this importance of understanding. And I'm just going to read you an excerpt. He's talking about post-World War II and the residue of anger in France. And once the executioners had gone, the French were left with their hatred only partially spent. They still look at one another with the residue of anger. Well... This is what we must overcome first of all. Our poisoned hearts must be cured and the most difficult battle to be won against the enemy in the future must be fought within ourselves with an exceptional effort that will transform our appetite for hatred into a desire for justice. Not giving in to hatred, not making any concessions to violence, not allowing our passions to become blind. These are things we can still do for friendship and against Hitlerism. Even today, certain newspapers still indulge in violence and insult, but that is simply still giving in to the enemy. Instead, it is essential that we never let criticism descend to insult. We must grant that our opponent may be right and that in any case his reasons, even though bad, may be disinterested. It is essential, in short, that we remake our political mentality. What does this mean if we stop to think about it? It means that we must save intelligence. And it's just the most fantastic essay about coming back from a huge divide. I mean, I can't think of a bigger divide than Hitler and, and what he did, you know, to France and to the whole of Europe and probably to the whole world, in fact. And talking about overcoming that, but with understanding and with intellectual understanding of people and responsibility and forgiveness without descending to violence or insult. I thought that was just something incredibly important and incredibly profound and very beautiful as well very moving yeah i guess you must get that emotion side of it through it being a speech and reading mm. it knowing it was used by an orator to mm. inspire or to provoke or you know a speech style i guess mm. adds that personal emotion yeah there's some real moments at the end and he's like and low <laughs> you know when you're like oh this really is a love speech. and low yeah <laughs> And low. <laughs> a very rallying manifesto-like, yeah. but quite nice to have a manifesto that's tending towards artistry and intellectualism and understanding rather than some of the other things that speeches have been used for. Yeah. Thinking with Hitler in mind. Mm. Really enjoyed. It was a little Penguin Modern, which are these really small little books of amazing ideas where they collect essays and they're incredibly beautiful. Mm. 
what about you? What have you been reading or watching or listening? <laughs> I've been doing a bit of everything this week, but I'll start with the book yeah. I've just finished, um, which mm-hmm. is also a nonfiction one. So mm-hmm. I have been reading the international bestseller Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. Have you read it or heard of it at all? I haven't heard of it. So I've seen it lots of places and, and heard it recommended a lot. Actually, it was my brother mm-hmm. who recommended it to me. Mm. He is at medical school, soon to be a doctor, and he referenced it as a book that lots of people say mm. you should read if you're, you know, wanting to go into the medical profession. Okay. And he loved it. He said he found it really moving. So I was really interested to see that, mm. how that all kind of played out. So Atul Gawande is an American surgeon, obviously writer and public mm. health researcher. So the book is a book that explores illness, medicine, and what matters in the end, as it says on the front cover. So it's basically explores mortality. And it's so fascinating. I have been so hooked and fascinated reading this book and also really, really moved. It's somehow treads that line beautifully of being incredibly enlightening and educating whilst being so personal and emotional. The biggest thing I took from the book was factual and yet so moving which I just think is a really great combination when a book holds those things for you so well it's a really lovely mix of anecdotes and personal stories and examples from his practice and fellow doctors practice explaining and exploring the healthcare systems that we have in place for elderly people and how societally we deal or maybe don't deal with aging and it's so interesting I learned so much in this book for example I learned about the origins of nursing homes. So nursing homes and the care system is, is the main focus of the book. But nursing homes were actually invented to be an overspill for hospitals. They weren't originally designed to be a place where we look after elderly people. Wow. Yeah. So basically there was a, a lot of elderly and disabled people who were being sort of dumped in hospitals in kind of like the 30s and the 40s. Mm. And it was kind of seen as the best place for them. But they didn't necessarily have a specific illness or ailment. And so... It was also really frustrating for hospitals to try and run and treat people with urgent cases when there was just loads of people who were just kind of had the longevity of being not able to look after themselves. And so nursing homes were created as a kind of overspill, literally run by nurses, hence the title, to house elderly and disabled people instead of them just remaining in hospital for ages. And that basically then has morphed into the place that we now actively send elderly people to a nursing home, even though they were never designed for that purpose. He traces the history of the care system, the failings, as well as the future. And the book does show you how ultimately the care system is hugely flawed, which doesn't sound massively revolutionary, but it it is still so shocking and sad to read, nonetheless, that these systems aren't full of care, as the title suggests. And the fact that that was shocking kind of ties into the notions of denial that we perhaps have about our own mortality, um, which I'll come back to later, that ongoing denial of ageing. So Atul Gawande explains how modern medicine has enabled and extended our existence much further than we are ready or prepared for. And in the book, he looks at specific examples. He tells people stories and explains where the system has perhaps failed them. And it's so, so moving. Really, really emotional book. He starts by writing about his his Indian grandfather as an example and how shocked his grandfather would be with the American or the Western system of care of putting people in homes. Obviously, in India, they culturally would take their elderly relatives in and live with them, looking after them. And Atul's grandfather actually lived to be 110. Wow. And wasn't letting his age stop him whatsoever. He kind of kept doing the things that we would have restricted him from doing from a perspective of care. Mm. You know, he kept inspecting his fields on horseback every evening until the age of 100. Oh, wow. I know, whereas, you know, Western society would have taken that that choice away from him and not let that happen for, for his own well-being. But it worked for him because that was his choice and that's what made him happy. Atul Gwandi also writes a lot about medical professionals not being the right people to help with old age, as he says medical professionals often regard the patient as just going downhill unless there's a specific problem that they can fix which is quite interesting because obviously doctors and nurses are the people we turn to in our society to prevent and delay death but that is when you're only looking at it from a medical viewpoint you know you can prevent death and still not really be living and he goes into this concept that that simply not dying 
does not equal living. The two things are so different. Yeah. And that's what he really champions, the idea of living, not just preventing death. It's really inspiring as well to to understand more and read more about some individuals who've imposed incredible change into an industry that has become quite removed from its purpose of, of care. The book looks at various studies, have lots of data and research, as well as the personal stories. And they are so fascinating. There was this one study that assigned elderly people into two groups and one group saw a dedicated team of geriatric nurses and doctors and the other group just saw their usual doctor. After a year and a half, 10% of the people in both groups had died, but in the group looked after by geriatricians, the participants were 40% less likely to become disabled. Oh, wow. Yeah, isn't that huge? And half as likely to develop depression, they were also 40% less likely to need home health services, which is incredible and just shows that, that, you know, the dedicated care, and he calls it the art and the science of geriatricians, can make such a massive impact. And it's not about that prevention of dying, it's about the art of living. And how can we better assist people in living well in old age, not just stopping death catching up on us? There was another amazing study that really stuck with me, ran by this incredible guy called Bill Thomas, Mm. who was super passionate about reinventing the nursing home setup. And he was determined to breathe life into them again and bring back the energy Mm. and the joy of living. And so much to everyone's dismay, he brought, after fighting a lot of battles to get to this point, he brought dogs and cats and birds, a parakeet per person, (laughs) and live plants instead of fake ones into this nursing home. And we're talking like at least two dogs a floor Mm -hmm. and two cats a floor, not just like one dog to tray around in reception and there was so many beautiful anecdotal pieces of evidence in the book to read about the positive effect this had on individuals and their stories which are just gorgeous to fall in love with these people the statistics from it was over two years that they studied it the number of prescriptions per resident fell to half of that of the control nursing home wow it just can't get over the, the huge nature mm. of these stats. Drugs for agitation dropped and deaths actually fell by 15%. Mm-hmm. Thomas said, quote, I believe that the difference in death rates can be traced to the fundamental human need for a reason to live. Oh, wow. And it's just, you know, having those animals and birds and plants and a sense of care yeah. and purpose back in your life, that knock-on effect on your health mm. is just massive. And it, it sounds so obvious, doesn't it? You know, like, okay, fill yeah. the place with life, fill it with animals, fill it with plants. Mm-hmm. Obviously, things are going to get better. Otherwise, it is just this waiting room for death. And with mm. people losing their independence, they do obviously steadily just become more mm. insular and depressed. There were lots of stories of people who came to nursing homes having quite suddenly lost everything you know maybe someone had lost their spouse Mm -hmm. and then lost their home and all of their natural surroundings and their belongings Mm. and then perhaps had an illness or a fall and suddenly lost their independence too and it can happen so Mm -hmm. quickly and suddenly they're in a home and of course it's going to be a place of despondency and Mm. and feeling like you've given up so injecting life with animals and plants was Mm. a glorious solution just going back to that notion earlier of denial around death Mm. a tool Gawande also writes a lot about how, and I hadn't even thought about this really, which is ironic, but he writes a lot about how little we plan for or even think about the end of our life. Yeah. Which is weird because it's such a fundamental part of life that it Mm. will end. And, you know, if you're lucky enough for it to end at the end after a very long full life, we Mm -hmm. really know it's coming, but we spend our time on earth kind of pretending it's not, kind Mm. of avoiding the possibility. So, so when it does happen, especially when it happens to those around us that we're, Mm -hmm. that we're close to or we're looking after potentially, we're just not ready for it. And that's often then a huge struggle and a burden. And, there was actually another study that showed that the number of children you have is directly related to the chance of you avoiding ending up in a nursing home. Wow. <laughs> Apparently having at least one daughter is crucial to the amount of help you'll receive. So Bloody hell. Top tip, make sure you have a daughter. <laughs> one at least. That's really interesting. I was listening to Sentimental in the City. I've talked about it before in the podcast and it's totally not relevant at all. Other than the fact <laughs> they were talking about death the way in which if you're friends with someone for whom dying is a potential factor in their immediate future how important it is to hold space for that eventuality in their minds that a lot of the time we go no no of course it's going to be fine the operation's Mm. going to be fine you're going to survive this you're going to be okay the miracle will happen and how important it is in that situation to allow the person 
to feel the feelings about death and allow them to process death before yeah. it happens. Yeah. Which I think is, is sort of part of that, isn't it? That people need to process the thought that they might be in care or process the fact that they might become less able mm. sort of as it happens, before it happens. And we don't often hold space for that. We're so much in denial about it, as you were saying. Yeah, totally. And I think in a really similar way, we also don't have those frank and really tough conversations about that mm. time. Yeah. And that's another thing he touches on in the book. There's this example of a woman whose father is in hospital mm-hmm. and she's chatting to him and, and making sure she's spending quality time and she goes to leave, kind of mm-hmm. kind of aware of the situation of his health and then suddenly realises she's never really asked him what kind of level of, of life he would be happy continuing with. Is there a mm-hmm. line for him? And actually those frank and tough conversations are so not a part of the fabric of, of family relationships and they really should be. It really, really opened my eyes to that. And basically she then doubles back and, and has that conversation with him and, mm-hmm. and he says that if he can eat chocolate ice cream and watch the football, then he'll be happy. <laughs> if he can't do those things, he doesn't mm-hmm. want to live in a world where those things aren't possible for him. Gosh. And then as it happens, he then goes into surgery and there is like a really serious incident in surgery and they mm-hmm. have to make the call that basically he was at the point now where he's going to have to wake up quadriplegic mm-hmm. and what did they want to do? And, you know, this woman is power of attorney for his health. Is that a thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She basically holds the, the choice mm. in her hands. And she said in that moment, all she could do is repeat the same information to the doctors and say, mm-hmm. if you carry on, will my father wake up and will he be able to eat chocolate ice cream and watch the football? And they said, yes, he will be able to do those things. And so mm-hmm. she said, okay, then do it, carry on. But there was like a three minute window in which she had to make that call. Mm-hmm. And she was like, thank God we had that conversation because... If I hadn't had that information, she looks back on it and she thinks she'd have leaned the other way. She'd have thought, Mm. no, my father won't want to live a life where he doesn't have full autonomy over his body and his mind. Mm -hmm. And she could have made a very different decision. And he went on to live for another 10 years Mm -hmm. and wrote two books. Wow. (laughs) And learned to to have a bit of function in his legs again. And I think he was Mm. able to walk with assistance. The outcome could have been so different. Mm. The writing in the book really... It's not like a kind of call to action, but it does mm-hmm. leave you thinking about some really big and heavy things in a not too depressing way. I know that sounds hard to imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and then he also mentions what he sees as a problem, the medical focus on health mm-hmm. rather than well-being or, mm. or you know, the sustenance of the soul. Mm. Obviously not specifically on an individual level. There are so many very deeply compassionate and caring doctors and nurses, but more mm-hmm. as the system of medicine, as he describes it. He says medicine's focus is so narrow mm. and largely medicine has the power over how we live out the ends of our lives and Mm -hmm. there's a quote that's really interesting he says quote if safety and protection were always sought in life perhaps we could conclude differently Mm -hmm. but because we seek a life of worth and purpose and yet are routinely denied the conditions that might make it possible there is no other way to see what modern society has done Mm. end quote he also, just to finish, I could just read and just oh, jump around <laughs> different sections of this book yeah. so much because it's not really a, a chronological experience going through the book because mm. it does jump, like I said, between research and, and the history and then beautifully woven in personal stories. And there's the ongoing connection and story he has with his own father, who was also a doctor. And he has this great analogy near the end of healthcare as a war. And mm. he says, medicine exists to fight disease and death at its most basic form. Mm-hmm. But death will always win the battle. We all know that, but we we kind of don't see it so clearly sometimes, but death is always going to win. Mm-hmm. And so therefore he says, instead of us focusing on, on somehow beating death, what we should focus on is having a really good general in your army, having a general mm-hmm. who will know when to push for territory and when to yeah. surrender, not having a general who will just kind of blindly keep fighting to the point of impossibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's such an interesting way of looking at it like I said it's really not a morbid book it's really quite uplifting it it is really sad it makes you wonder about the state of this of society and our care systems are so fundamental to all elements of life where you Mm. rely on them hugely and this care system of of elderly people is massively failing yeah but it is a really wonderful read it's really really tender and touching and I just Mm. discovered so much through it and also if you're intrigued stick his name into YouTube and just Mm -hmm. listen to him giving some TED talks and being interviewed because he's so brilliant yeah obviously this is his absolute area of expertise and he's Mm. so 
honest and so insightful about about this whole area i found mm-hmm. it really really fascinating so yeah i'm trying to make it uplifting because it really is a beautiful <laughs> wonderful book it's not just about dying but it's a really great read i really recommend it being mortal by uh atul Gawande. god that sounds fantastic it is funny isn't it when we're talking about books and you, you start reading off statistics and you realize how depressing it sounds but actually in <laughs> fact the book is so much more than that but our expressions yeah. of it become so so small Mm. it's so completely links actually with the book that i've been reading this week which is called range by david epstein and it's about how generalists triumph in a specialized world so it's about the way in which our world often prioritizes the stories of those that hyper specialize from a very young age and they go down this massive tunnel that deeper and deeper and deeper and don't deviate. And this book very reassuringly discusses the importance of range and breadth in so many areas mm. of our life. He does discuss that there are some subjects where people can hyper specialize very young and that will pay off in great success like chess and golf. But hyper-specialisation can impair the medical field because people go so far down a rabbit hole in terms of medicalization that they can't then see the wood for the trees and see a holistic whole of the human, mm. exactly as you're saying. They just see their very specialised area. And mm. one of the <laughs> one of the mad statistics that I'm just going to read to you... So... Interventional cardiologists have got so used to treating chest pains with stents, which are metal tubes that pry open blood vessels, that they do so reflexively, even in cases where voluminous, 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 where voluminous research has proven that they are inappropriate or dangerous. A recent study found that cardiac patients were actually less likely to die if they were admitted during a national cardiology meeting when thousands of cardiologists were away. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> oh no! I know. I thought that was such a. I mean, obviously, medical professionals do so much for us, and and I feel like between this and give birth like a feminist <laughs> book, we've been <laughs> giving them a good old bashing, and I don't think that is the case we love at you all. Doctors. We really do. We we love the NHS. God save the NHS. The book talks about how important it is for medical professionals to have one foot in the camp of their very niche knowledge, but then another foot outside so they can see elsewhere. And Mm. they had all these amazing statistics. Nobel laureates are at least 22 times more likely to be an amateur actor, dancer, musician, or other type of performer. All across the board, it shows that if people maintain other interests and broader interests and play multiple instruments, they will have a better result overall. That's so interesting. Mm. And apparently highly credentialed experts can get worse with experience, not better, despite becoming more confident because they won't be able to see the broader picture and they will start responding to patterns, which, as I said, in golf or chess, pattern recognition Mm, and responding to patterns is incredibly useful. But in terms of human behaviour and things like life or medical situations, it can be incredibly unpredictable. Mm. And generally, people that specialise very young will get a head start. And that can be really scary for those of us that are later developing. But once those later generalists develop, they then will often go into a job that fits them more and that they enjoy a lot more. This book is full of so many things. Apparently, the banking crisis in 2008 could, in part, have been due to over-specialisation because bankers were not able to see the whole picture. They just saw their very particular niche and couldn't see how their actions as a whole would affect Mm. the market, which I thought was just incredible. And this rather wonderful quote, the most effective learning looks like falling behind. It talks about different modes of learning and how you can most effectively learn by struggling essentially by struggling to recall knowledge by struggling to understand something is how you'll best learn but if you're being given a test in a class the ways in which you'll perform best in that test are ways that rely on short-term memory and not struggle to recall which means that if you perform well in class all the way through then you're less likely to have as great a strength of knowledge at the end of your schooling career as opposed to if you do tests that you frequently underperform at because you you're struggling Mm. and your learning is designed in that long-term way then you'll actually perform 
better at the end of the schooling career, which I thought was so interesting because so much of our lives are, are geared towards getting the results and so many ways of teaching are structured towards giving the students the answers and the ability to be able to perform on the tests, which actually has nothing to do with your learning in the long term. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's very comforting to know that. <laughs> I know, I know. I struggled. <laughs> that was a good thing. It's great. Yeah. And that was just the most incredible story that they told about this hospital, essentially an orphanage, where they would take in the unwanted babies of mothers. So at that time, it was probably sex workers and unmarried mothers. And they would raise these babies in this hospital it worked as a whole community that everyone worked towards the community. They had their own banking systems. They educated in terms of writing, reading, all sorts of things. And they were donated a lot of instruments. So they started giving the children in this orphanage music lessons, but only around their chores and around their other jobs because they all contributed to the working of the community. This institution raised up these incredible musicians. So, so many of the girls that came out of these orphanages were virtuosos, so much so that Vivaldi wrote 140 symphonies for this orphanage because they were so proficient at, at music. And one of the reasons they think this is, is because they would learn to play all the musical instruments that they had. So they would learn to play the violin, the cello, the flute, the harpsichord and this is a period in time where they were inventing all sorts of instruments at the same time as well and these girls and women could just pick up these instruments and play them and learn to play them and switch between instruments and just became incredibly proficient but they were generalists and they were also holding down jobs as teachers or as nurses all the way through their careers being these incredible virtuosos and it was said composers from all around the world flocked to this place to to take advantage of these women who could play so beautifully and I think Mozart composed for them as well gosh that's incredible I know so it just goes to show they were only allowed to practice for one hour a day and they had lessons on Tuesdays Wednesdays and Saturdays formal lessons in musical instruments and then the rest of the time they had to do their chores and do everything else and yet became these astonishing musicians I thought that story was just incredible they go into a huge deep dive about chess and the patterns in chess and how that works with computers and now they team up computers with chess players which create this unit called a centaur in the chess world and they play chess together and often can beat the best chess computers by having a human play with a chess so the human outsources a lot of the pattern making and knowledge in that sense but then the human organizes the tactic that humans has an amazing ability to very quickly tactically decide which path the computer should go down and which path it should start its research in in order to get the best results. So it's about the greatest strength that human has is the opposite of this narrow specialisation. And in the words of the book, we suck at each layer of thinking individually, but we can combine and be adaptive with an approximate understanding of all the layers at one time. And that experts trade flexibility for narrow skill. This causes a thing called cognitive entrenchment, where you get stuck in sort of one pattern of thinking. And a way in which to break out of this is to vary challenges within your domain and have one foot in your world and one foot outside in another hobby. One thing which I'm going to look up after this is these things called Fermi problems, which are very useful for increasing your critical thinking in a more broad sense, where you look at problems where you don't have all the information and you just have to apply critical thinking to abstract situations that cover all things from, you know, math, economics, human nature, and come to answers, which I think could just be a really fun way to just sort of like strengthen your brain power. Mm. Fascinating book. Totally recommend it. I feel like I've just given so many little like <laughs> pipsqueak moments of the book, but I found it really interesting. No, it sounds it. it sounds really interesting. I love that whole thought process about the benefits of doing lots of things. <laughs> Sam and I have had lots of chats before. Mm. We both loved sports and things growing up and I was mm-hmm. really competitive and did loads of different types of sports because I enjoyed mm. them all. And often you have that thought 
thought of going, oh, I wonder if I just put all of my energy into one of those things, if I'd have like been mm. really, really good at it and, and actually would have wanted that and all of those different things. And we both are people who just enjoyed it all. So, so mm-hmm. did that. Thank you, parents. Good choices there. Mm-hmm. But, but it is interesting to hear that actually that is a proven benefit mm. to do a broad range mm, very interesting thank you for sharing that it talks all of all about different sports as well that generally the tiger woods example is brought up that he was playing golf since he could stand i think but in fact people like roger federer because it's i think a much less sensational story we don't hear it as much that roger federer played all sorts of sports and didn't specialize until until later down the line yeah that it all contributes to make you a a more well-rounded person Mm. which is very reassuring i totally agree (laughs) yeah Well, speaking of of a range of skills, Mm. I have been watching a brilliant YouTube series that the National Mm. Theatre has launched. Um, I say watching, I've only Mm -hmm. watched the first one, but I've got them all lined up. I'm very excited. So Mm -hmm. the National Theatre have launched a YouTube series called Life in Stages. Mm. And it's these kind of conversational interviews, two-way interviews, both participants questioning and answering. Mm. And I've watched the episode with Olivia Coleman and Rufus Norris, which was just a delight. So Olivia Coleman, obviously award-winning, Oscar-winning actress, everyone Mm. loves her. And Rufus Norris is the artistic director of The National. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It was so wonderful and so insightful mm-hmm. and warm and inspiring. And oh, you know, when Olivia Coleman collects an award and you just know her speech <laughs> will be so perfect and lovable mm. because she is so perfect and lovable. Well, mm. that's what this conversation was. I just sat there smiling the whole way through. Oh, like, wow. And she's a bit in love with her. <laughs> I then went down a bit of a, a rabbit hole on YouTube of watching some 19 minute compilation video of Olivia <laughs> Coleman's greatest award acceptance speeches. <laughs> I literally cried. I'm not ashamed oh. to say I cried. She's so <laughs> sincere. And mm-hmm. oh, it was so sweet. So the actual, like I said, two-way interview chat is mm-hmm. so great. You hear her talking about how it goes right from the beginning. So how she got into acting, mm. her drama school experience. Oh, there's a lovely section about how she met her husband, which is mm-hmm. the most adorable story. You must go and, and watch it. And it's so cute to give you a little I- snippet. Oh, have you seen it? I think I heard her talking about it at something. Yeah, I've seen that little bit cut mm. out and shared a lot recently. Basically, she fell in love with him, I think, at youth theatre or something and like mm-hmm. totally stalked him as children, <laughs> found out what music he liked, went mm-hmm. away, listened to it, learned all the words, did whatever he did, <laughs> memorised his timetable so that she could always like be there. <laughs> so weird and so cute. And then they got married. Oh, But like I said, it's not so much an interview because I think mm-hmm. at first I thought it was because it was obviously a national theatre Mm-hmm. series and it was on the National Theatre stage so I thought mm-hmm. oh this is Rufus Norris off the National Theatre interviewing Olivia Coleman mm-hmm. but it's like an in conversation with and they, they mm-hmm. do just share stories and, and progress through life and how they both got into the various things they do mm-hmm. back and forth and it was such a great dynamic mm-hmm. I think the next one in the series is um, Josh O'Connor and Jesse Buckley mm-hmm. who have just played Romeo and Juliet at the National which was mm-hmm. live streamed or, or filmed and released I can't remember which a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. and I guess that's the same with both of them mm. chatting about their lives. I just really liked that style. It was a little bit different. Yeah. And they're both, Olivia Coleman and Rufus Norris are so interesting to hear about how they got to where they did and also mm-hmm. just really, really endearing. Their love for the art and what mm-hmm. they do and their dedication is so, it shines through and mm. they're very articulate about their experiences. It's just such a great watch. And mm-hmm. oh, it got me all fired up for like theatre and, and live <laughs> performance and music and everything to start again. And I'm just, yeah, no, it was a very lovely way to kind of while away 40 mm. minutes or so and yeah I've seen a couple more that have come up now in my if you like this you should watch this list mm. <laughs> and I think they've got some great people on there and there's probably quite yeah. a few out by now so yeah Life in Stages by the National Theatre on YouTube a good little watch oh that sounds amazing mm. yeah I think I have seen it advertised and it did look really incredible Olivia Coleman also doesn't do tons of press and interviews mm-hmm. and she's not on social media and she's not really into all that side of things mm-hmm. a bit like you know someone like Phoebe Waller-Bridge all the best people aren't that does say something doesn't it maybe <laughs> we should all maybe we should all remove ourselves from those distractions but it does mm. make you want to know them more and feel like you've got a behind the scenes peek at their mm-hmm. li- lives and who they are and everything and it was yeah mm-hmm. really lovely to have that glimpse into someone I admire so much mm-hmm. what have you been watching anything anything similar or something very different wow no so I love this podcast for a really long time and I've wanted to talk about it on here but I haven't known how to kind of 
approach it. It's such Ooh. a fantastic podcast. It's called The Great Woman Artist Podcast and it's hosted by Katie Hessel. And I think one of the reasons why I found it difficult to approach in this situation is because of how out of my comfort zone it is. So mm. each episode focuses around an artist, a female artist, and has a guest. So the guest might be the artist themselves or might be an expert on the artist. And then they delve back through the history and life and philosophies and life philosophies of the artist and artistic philosophies. It really is art history at its best. It's sort of vibrant and elegantly expressed and joyful and quite fun. But it really makes me understand how little I know. It's sort of that Dunning-Kruger effect where the more you find out about a subject, the more you realise how little you know. (laughs) But the episode I've just listened to felt like a really good entry point into this podcast for our podcast. (laughs) It's an interview with Ali Smith, who wrote... How to Be Both. Do you remember in 2014? No, don't remember that at all. Massive success, won loads of awards. And she's since written a quartet of books which are based around the seasons, so winter, autumn, spring, summer. And each book has a sort of focus on an artist. So Barbara Hepsworth, Pauline Boti, Tassida Dean and Lorenzo Mazzetti. And it's these artists about which Katie and Ali are talking. And honestly, I haven't heard anyone discuss visual artists and literature in this way before. And it's so moving and thoughtful. Ali Smith introduces herself as someone that responds to art and feels it without knowing all that much. And then she goes on to just discuss in such an elegant and mesmerising way the works of these artists and the way in which they intersect with her work. And it's just, you know, such a monumental mountain of understanding and feeling and thought. And she said this one thing which has stuck with me ever since, that every story has the skin of an untold story pressing through its surface. I thought it was just so beautiful and so profound. And I really, I haven't read much of her work before, but I cannot wait to read it now that I've heard her speak. It was transformative, but the, the podcast as a whole is so fantastic. And I learn so much every time I listen. One thing which I learned from this podcast was that the spines of books used to actually be made from the spines of animals, as that had the most flex and strength in the way that was needed. So that's why a spine of a book is called a spine. Wow. What kind Mm. of animal? I suppose a a medium-sized one. For Mm. It depends how big the book is. (laughs) I imagine it was sort of between sheep, cows and goats. Oh, okay. I was definitely thinking like ferret, guinea pig size. I have I clearly reckon. got the idea of but of spines of animals wrong. Yeah, I think a guinea pig would be definitely too small. Mm, well, I would have thought it's sort of leather. <laughs> I'm thinking a miniature <laughs> book. Okay. Huh. Well, there we go. That's a great little fact. Who'd have thunk? Uh, I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. It's also following your unintentional animal theme. Oh, I know. Animals and books there. Nicely done. <laughs> Segwaying into more books from next week, I think. Mm, very good. Very good. <laughs> yeah, so such, such an amazing podcast. I really enjoyed that. And I can't wait to dive into Ali Smith's books, actually, because from the way she talks, I just feel like she must be the most incredible writer cool i've got a <laughs> did that sound really sarcastic yeah cool. so sorry mm, yeah, yeah, cut that. No, no. yeah sounds great nice. yeah whatever sure nice <laughs> no that sounds really good i have got a little podcast recommendation for you Ooh. that i've barely dipped my toe in the water of but mm-hmm. i loved it so i'm gonna plug it anyway mm-hmm. it's called the panic years nell frizzell ah she's got a book out she does also yes. called the panic years i think yes, it's yes, out yes. now or about to come out and i listened to the episode with sarah pascoe on it mm-hmm. i literally had never heard of nell frizzell before i just love saying mm-hmm. that what a great name unless i'm <laughs> saying it wrong and it's frizzle but i don't think it is <laughs> nell frizzell she's a very prolific journalist and mm-hmm. like you said has just released her first book called mm-hmm. the panic years and the podcast has the same name and 
Oh, it's got the best introduction of her quite simply and bluntly mm. outlining a time in her life where basically everyone was getting married or having babies or getting mm-hmm. promoted and she was single and redundant. Mm. And she now realises that's okay because these were the panic years, her panic yeah. years. And I just love the whole concept and the title. Mm. And I'm sure the podcast explores many sides of that. Mm-hmm. But I've only listened to this one episode with the genius that is Sarah Pascoe. I think she's so smart. Oh, isn't she just mm. so good? I, I, so I literally found this podcast simply because I was fancying a little bit of Sarah Pascoe wisdom in my life. And she does have her own podcast, but it's obviously mm. focusing often on other people and other things. And I just mm-hmm. wanted a bit of her. Yeah. <laughs> so I put her name into the podcast search engine and it gave me loads of podcasts that she's been a guest on. Mm-hmm. I gave this one a listen. It sounded like a cool concept and I wanted mm-hmm. to hear what she had to say. And it caught my eye because the episode title for the Panic Years episode that she's on is called Why I Think I'm Allergic to Weddings with Sarah Pascoe. <laughs> and I was intrigued because I love a wedding and mm-hmm. I'm a bit obsessed. Honestly, I walked through town the other day and someone was getting married I just had to stand there and <laughs> stare at them and swoon Aww. for a little bit I just love it I get so excited so I was very curious therefore about the notion of hating them mm-hmm. which I know quite a lot of people do or maybe hate's a strong word but they you know aren't a fan of or it's a bit of a oh another wedding mm-hmm. now Frizzell and Sarah Pascoe just unpick it brilliantly mm. Sarah Pascoe doesn't go to weddings she really really doesn't like them wow. gets nothing from the social occasion mm-hmm. isn't against you know people themselves getting married or anything just hates weddings and she says how she she always could avoid them in the past because of her job as a stand-up she was either Mm -hmm. always touring or she was working in the evenings and the weekends and Mm -hmm. and also not having any money and so had only ever really been to her sister's wedding and I think maybe one other Mm -hmm. and even that one she left early for for a gig that she admits only paid her 30 pounds she's not a fan so she's pretty anti-weddings And also, Auntie, why the world and society wants you to be married and why it's much happier with you and can deal with you much better when you are. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. The discussion about this sort of takes them in so many directions. It's very funny as well as really informative and challenging. Mm -hmm. Dipping into the psychology of why it's uncomfortable sometimes to be at weddings and Mm. and where the ego fits into that and how Mm. weddings often are groups of people thrust together in a very formal and Mm -hmm. kind of forced fun way. The episode is not wedding bashing. It's Mm -hmm. just unpicking the feelings for them. Mm. And more than anything, you know, Sarah Pascoe is is just so, so intelligent in such an accessible and enjoyable and and funny way as a listener or as a Mm -hmm. viewer, you know. I really want to soak up everything she has to say about things mm. like that. So it's very interesting to hear them talk so brilliantly about something that I'm so on the other end of the spectrum at. Yeah. She also tells this brilliant story. So she's actually recently got married. Like I said, mm-hmm. she's not like anti-marriage. It's just the wedding side of thing. Mm-hmm. And she tells this story about how she got married recently and she didn't, you know, have a big wedding or announce it or post about it on social media or anything. Mm-hmm. Her and her husband just got married. And then she was on Graham Norton, the Graham Norton show recently, promoting her new TV show, Out of Her Mind. Have you seen Ooh. that, by the way? No, I haven't. No. Ah, so I watched one episode of it the other day because mm-hmm. I just heard this podcast and I was like, oh, give me more. It's really... Oh, I'll talk about it in another episode. I can't, <laughs> I can't go on a tangent now. It's very good. Very different. Totally not what I expected. Very, mm. very breaks the fourth wall, all of that stuff. So yeah. Very different, but very interesting. Mm. Anyway, she was on Graham Norton promoting that. And she really wanted to tell a certain story. And the run into it kind of needed her to reference oh, well, so I just got married and and then she could tell the story. Mm-hmm. And so she says that, oh, I just got married recently, and blah, 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 tells a story. Mm-hmm. I thought nothing more of it. And then the next day or whenever the Graham Norton show aired, the press absolutely went crazy for it yeah. for the next little while. And it was literally all people cared about, even though she had her own show coming out and the press for that was like mm. normal levels. They went crazy for the fact that she'd got married. Mm-hmm. She said a researcher then called her up for her mm-hmm. bit before she went on the one show. This is a couple of days after this had all come out. And the first question the researcher said to her on the phone was, oh, so Sarah, you've uh, you've recently got married. What does your new husband think about your show? Ooh, and fuck. she was like, what? And she yeah. said like she reacted so badly to it. And she was like, I didn't want to take it out on the researcher because that's their job. But also... Well, no, that's not your job though. Are we in the 1950s? Does yeah. it have any relevance what my husband thinks of my work why don't you ask mm. me what I think of my work? Mm. So it's very, very interesting. And yeah, their whole conversation is really funny, really engaging. Mm-hmm. 
lots of food for thought and Nell Frizzell obviously is a great host and also very very funny and I'm excited to listen to more of it I just think the whole concept mm. the panic years your 20s your 30s we all feel yeah. it mm. it's just I quite like to have that title <laughs> to cling yeah. to now the panic years it's great yeah it feels really apt mm, it does doesn't it and also did you know that mothers have now been added to the forms that you sign when you get married I did know this. So when you got married before, only your dad goes on the paperwork. And now mothers are now on the paperwork, which is very exciting. And they even, get this, they even ask what their jobs are. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Yeah, it used to literally just be like your father and what he did. And now Mm. it's... I I still don't know why they need to know what either of your parents do as an occupation. Mm. Very weird. The whole marriage thing is very weird and antiquated. I've also had a very strange obsession with Say Yes to the Dress this week. (laughs) (gasps) Yes. Never watched before, but weirdly... watched so many little like clips on YouTube and it kept on making me cry and I was like oh this is a weird I don't know what's going on did you watch the American one or the English one well I I started with the American one simply because I was just so mesmerized by how crazy and manic the whole system is about they kind of whip everyone up into this furore of of witch dress and the mother hates it and the bride hates the mother and (laughs) the sister hates everyone and and there's just this crazy situation and then you you see the Gokwan episodes and Gokwan's just like and how can I give you support? Let's understand your deepest insecurities in a way that will make you love this dress and love yourself and love the wedding. And it's such a contrast. And maybe cry so much. But that's uh, been a weird thing that I've been indulging in this week. Oh, I love it. But weddings are so strange and antiquated, but also then been modernised into this like pseudo-faux traditionalism that doesn't fit with what actually used to happen. It's all totally strange in my book. But it is very lovely that people want to love each other and commit to each other in such a ostentatious way. <laughs> That's the thing. I think if I start, if you start breaking it all down, there's so much mm. of it that doesn't sit with everything else you believe in. Mm-hmm. And then I just go, oh, but it's so lovely. I just love a wedding. <laughs> but yeah, it's a great lesson for whether you're mm. a wedding fan or you're not a fan of wedding, dive in. Let us know if it changes your opinion. Whether you're panicking about your years. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds perfect. Gosh, thank you so much for such a stimulating conversation as ever. Love talking to you. Love you. And love all you listeners. So excited to have you here. And subscribe, rate, review, and come back next week. All of the love. That was delightful. See you soon. (laughs) See you soon. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 